never just have that moment where you look over your shoulder and wonder if there's going to be a big shark there. Oh, there's always a big shark there. There's more sharks in our business than in the ocean. One Path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to episode five of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today I have the commercial real estate activist and close friend of mine, the most interesting man in the world, <laughs> Arturo Snyder. Arturo is founding partner and CEO of Prime Store Development Incorporated, strong focus in largely underserved urban communities and under his direction, Prime Store's diverse portfolio has maintained an approximate 95% occupancy rate and approximately 80 projects. Mr. Snyder was nominated as the Entrepreneur of the Year in 1997 by Hispanic Business Magazine and has had extensive written and televised press about him and his work. I have no doubts about that. Arturo, <laughs> it's great to see you, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show. Likewise, Kyle. Great to see you. Oh, Thanks for having it's me. It's good to be back in LA. So we were actually just talking and you had said uh, yesterday was the start of what? It was two months of the beginning of getting a break from travel. <laughs> Can't wait. So every time we talk, we talk real estate, we talk personal things, and then, but inevitably, we always talk travel. So, yes. you, uh -huh. I part of the reason I, I tell everyone anytime your name comes up, I say this is the most interesting man in the world is because <laughs> you're always going somewhere or doing something that is is interesting. It's fascinating, and it's just simply put, super cool. So, tell me, all right, two months of not travel. That's probably because. You've been doing a lot. Tell me some of the places you've been recently. Yeah, I mean, this one was my son lives in Rome right now. He finished college going to get work in the fashion industry. And a friend of mine happened to have his 60th birthday in Venice, Italy. And my son lives in Rome. He turned 24 the same day. So I said, grab a train. We spent the weekend together there. And so he's in Rome in the fashion industry, fashion design? You know, he's interested in the whole industry. So he went to Gallatin and studied how it works from, from production to manufacturing to design to how do you run the business? How do you run the retail? And so he's getting into a company that's been around for 24 years, operating stores. Everything is handmade in Italy. Everything's designed there. So it's vertically integrated, gives him a lot of exposure to what that industry that he loves. And you spend enough time there, you're going to start buying shopping centers. <laughs> I was in Florence last summer for a while. And did you ever see that that movie? Was it House of Gucci? Yes, I it did. It was so good. It was I excellent. That, that, so again, I'm not an expert by any means on the on fashion design or all things Italian, but it was a good one. It is. And, and it shows the depth of family and the passion behind it. And this partnership that my son has is with a family that's got that kind of passion and drive is, yeah, Italian flamboyance. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's most, most huge brands today are owned by two conglomerates, Yes, but you've got a few that are still the Pradas and the, the Hermes and, and certain brands that are retaining their ethnicity and their culture. And that's what he's looking for. So he's in Italy, you're in Italy, personal ish trip, right? I know you had a, a friend as well doing a 60th. Where else have you been recently? 
So, you know, I, I love to scuba dive, right? Yes. So Papua New Guinea is a place where my brothers and I went uh, many, many, many years ago in an exploration to the jungle. And then we found out about this incredible dive spot called Raja Ampat, which is remote, as you could imagine. Well, well Papua New Guinea is pretty remote. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think that was, and I could be wrong, I don't want to, that was one of the last places they had, you know, outside of the Amazon, humans living in a very... How would I say historical, bro? Primitive. Primitive sense. Yeah. yeah. And I think there was, you know, I was on some discovery. There's, you had to be careful going into the jungle because like. Yes. I mean, my brothers yeah. and I went into trekking and basically sleeping on hammocks in the middle of the jungle for a few weeks in 2009. Not time. a lot going on in real estate at that time. No. So why not? Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, Ugh. it was a complex time for us yeah. and for my brothers and I. And we had always wanted to go to the most remote, most prehistoric kind of environment on earth. Hard to get to. Jared Diamond, who is the, I think, the most famous living anthropologist, had helped my brother kind of figure out how do you even get there and how do you get access and et cetera. So that's how we discovered the dive site. And so we've been out there many, many times. My brother's super involved in preserving the coral system out there now. And kind of after he retired from work, he's focused on that. So Alexis and I went out there. Yeah. It was just amazing, amazing place. I mean, I think the best diving in the world. I'll, I'll have to go with you. Outside of personal, professional, a lot of travel? Lots of travel. You know, we had our first closing on our first fund. I've been as a goal in my life. As I kind of reached a certain point in the company, I wanted to raise my own discretionary fund. And for minority, a developer focused in what we do, I knew it was going to be hard. I had no idea it was going to be nearly impossible. And traveling a lot to do that, you mm. know, pitching and, and learning a totally different side of the business, a totally new language, something that I knew nothing about, honestly. And it's been exhausting and rewarding at the same time. That's good. And that, that's led you to yesterday saying, hey, I'm going to take two months and I'm just going to be here in Southern California. No, no planes, no travel. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm super focused on my health. I am. I, uh, I know you. Obsessively. Yeah, we talked a lot about it. Yeah. So and so it, I do realize at some point that it's like, look, I need to get back into myself. That's when I'm at my best, when I am in balance with my sort of health and wellness and mental awareness and connection to my team. And I just need to be able to put my head down and have some consistency on the schedule because traveling, as you know. And pitching institutional capital in New York is not a con conducive <laughs> to that, right? No, yeah. not in even New York, Europe, yeah, uh, know, you know, yeah. all over the place. I know place. You're, you're, you're global. So yeah. when you're here in these in the States, you're here in LA and you're in your, your routines from a, from a perspective of uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like now as CEO of, of Prime Store? What is what is a typical week look like? When I'm in LA, I go to the gym early in the morning. I like to work out pretty hard. So I will mix, you know, weight training from cardio every other day. I usually get to the office first and I have meetings with all the leadership team once a week, usually one-on-one, -on -one, and then once a month with the entire leadership team. And then I'm out literally city councils community meetings, tours for shopping centers and properties. And I mix that into my visit to our properties and our centers. So it's a pretty active environment. The office has no offices. Hmm. So everything is open and I have no office. So kind of like a bullpen 
cubes? No cubes. No, it's like, uh, sit stand desks throughout the entire huge it. open yeah. space. And so it's super interactive. Sure. It takes a lot of culture work to be able to make an office like that work, which yeah. we learned the hard way. Sure. But it's really helped me connect with the team when I'm here in LA. Uh, yeah, that's cool. That's very different. And and so when you you, you have an intimate media call, you, you there's a small conference room, conference right. room to go to. Lots of breakout rooms and different types of configurations and spaces. And we've refined it to the prime store culture because we visited tons of offices where we sort of figured out, well, this didn't work for them for this reason. This won't work for us for that reason. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, and COVID changed some of that. Yes, it did. Over 80 assets today and more. I know. It, yeah. You're adding you know, by the day, but uh, we were terrible sellers. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, I know. I, I spent years cold calling Arturo from to no avail. <laughs> you know, the reason I think is our projects in super dense communities, there's a tremendous effort that goes into entitling assemblage. Usually there are multiple properties that are put together to assemble something. We have very limited competition to the rent roll. And so we don't really see the downside in any, any, I haven't, I mean, fortunately, mm -hmm. knock on concrete, we haven't seen that happen yet, but Yes, we've got roughly about 60 some assets today. We have pre-development and development of about a billion dollars right now between uh, apartment. We're doing market rate and affordable. We're mixing it with some medical use, but uh, obviously our anchor retail is still the, the heart of the business. Sure. And walk, walk the audience through Prime Store historically. What has been your focus? I know, but let's not assume they, do yeah. they know. And, and then you touched on it, you know, somewhat with density and mixed use, like how that might, ha how that's evolved over the years. You know, I moved here from Mexico. Yeah, right? we're going to, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so density took a different meaning for me when I moved up here because yeah. in Mexico city, density is tenfold. Yes. Right. And so I had to understand that dynamic. And today what we're seeing is as the evolution of third, fourth, fifth generation immigrants there's a bigger demand for mixed use, mm -hmm. a bigger demand for me to live, work, play, and have access to public transportation. So our projects have adapted significantly to that. We created a housing division as a result of that over the last three years, led by Delayla Sotelo, who's an incredible residential developer. And it's a full in-house department. So we've, we're learning how that integrates. But interestingly enough, mixed use in these communities actually works differently than I've seen in other communities. And that's something that I think we're creating in some ways product that has never been done. As we used to do with shopping centers, we yeah. were looking at how do we create a product that is commonly known in mainstream markets, but for this customer to resonate and translate to what the ultimate goal, which is higher sales per square foot, so that we can prove the concept that the demand is certainly greater than supply. Yeah, I remember when I was growing up in the business, what I knew Prime Store was you were one of the few, I don't want to say if only, but it almost felt like that at times, Hispanic community focus and, and in many ways, Hispanic grocer focus. And a lot of the larger, I mean, you guys were large by the time I got in the space, but a lot of the larger companies, especially public, publicly traded, they were so focused on credit Right. And uh, even if the operating fundamentals of the real estate were inferior to a Hispanic grocery anchored shopping center doing over a thousand a square foot at the time, yeah. they might chase a, an Albertsons or Ralph's doing 400 just because of credit. But we've seen that that flip tremendously. Talk, talk, talk to me about what it was like getting into that space at the time where 
I don't know if you're the only one, but but certainly one of the the first the first first in, and then how that's changed as you've seen a little bit more institutional capital flow into the space. Yeah, I mean, getting into the space was way harder than I ever imagined, but for the reasons that I didn't understand. So I, you know, when I came here from Mexico, it was obvious to me that the demand was tremendous and that the supply was non-existent. And for some reason that was happening, but it was, it was just crazy to even think that this was happening. Mm -hmm. But then I realized as I understood the way the history of these communities and the history that sort of developed that culture, why it wasn't happening. And the fact was simply, there was no interest to be in communities that didn't have all the check the box sure. kind of items, you know, income, education, all these things. And and I, I was the first idiot to kind of think, wait, wait a minute, do you really need like a master's degree to buy diapers? Because this family has five kids. Yeah. They're working three jobs. They need a lot of diapers. I don't think they need a college degree to buy diapers. This is true. This is true. <laughs> and so, credit yeah. to us became an understanding of the work ethic of the people behind the store. But the financials markets did not agree with me on that at all. And so you had that total clash of, we don't want to underwrite that. We understand what you're saying, but. Did you did you find it difficult to source capital in, in whether it was on the investment LP side or even just on the asset level debt construction lending? Was it just it was hard to find? Extremely. Yeah, extremely hard. I mean, first of all, pre-internet, pre-anything, you know, Thomas Guide, census tract book comes out. You're kind of figuring out. And I didn't realize what the tenant's language was until we had to then pitch to ourselves and say, okay, how would you believe in this demographic if you don't know it, if you have no data about it and nothing is out there that makes any sense? So we started creating our own pitch basically on why this demographic is where you need to be. And we rewrote all that. And then I started traveling across the United States, any meeting that would take me, any tenant that would take me, any lender that would talk to me, I would say, I don't understand. Fastest growing demographic in the United States, largest Spanish speaking economy on earth in dollars, no political risk from a national crazy dictator or anything going on. Why are you not in this market? And I realized that if you talk to the real estate department, you were going to get nowhere because real estate committees and volume projection is based upon filling sort of give me 100 stores here's the the criteria well we met one criteria maybe maybe two (laughs) but it was no no deal maker would fall on their sword for one deal so we had to build direct relationships with ceos and coos in order to convince them that this wasn't about a store it was about a strategy and that took a decade that took a decade of rejection, but for little deal here, tiny deal there, eventually until we turn yeah, the corner. A long time for proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. So you said getting into the space. I, if you don't mind, I want to take it further back. Like you had mentioned coming here from Mexico. Like talk to me about talk to me about your childhood there. Mm-hmm. 
what was it like as a kid if you know whatever you're willing to dive into family and then and then i, I want to ask about the decision that you ultimately made to come to the states why and, and what that process was like yeah i mean mexico city when i was born and raised was paradise literally pristine organized clean beautiful culture walkable 70s ish yeah 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 early 70s yeah. just amazing and i would travel occasionally to other parts of the world with my father who was a plastic manufacturer and i would say oh this is beautiful just like mexico mm -hmm. right unfortunately in 1982 after the colombian sort of government took over the narcotics business with help from the u.s and they moved the, the, that business up to mexico elected a president that somehow later we found out was involved somehow in all of it and everything in mexico changed i grew up in a city that had no graffiti no drugs no gangs the first time i saw a gang member was in la the first time I saw graffiti in my city was in L.A. And so all of that instability, I'm the youngest of three brothers. My oldest brother was already living in L.A. in the garment business, which is where he'd spent his entire professional career. My brother in the middle is a film director. And so he was obviously one foot in the U.S., one foot in Mexico. And uh, as the youngest person in the family, they were like, listen, you don't still have a career. I was a teenager. I was super interested in working in the restaurant business. And my father was an investor in a couple of restaurants in Mexico. Mm -hmm. I've always loved to cook and I still do. And I said, well, just go to the U.S. with your brother and see what it's like. And if you find there, great. I knew my father's mentality was, God willing, he stays there because things are getting really bad in Mexico. Got it. So did, did, did your dad ever have that conversation with you, like implicitly, or was it you just knew he was kind of hoping to see you. Well, the, the, so my brothers and I have this expression that it, in, in Spanish is tu papa, your father, as opposed to our. Yeah. Particularly because I am seven and a half years younger than the middle one. And our family dynamic changed 180 degrees between my middle brother and me. So my dad was a very powerful, big guy, very athletic, charismatic, very successful at a very young age, started his own business at 19. But he got MS and it was brutal on him. So by the time I was eight, nine, he was almost incapacitated. So a very different father to you than to them because of the disease? It, actually, it became in the way I felt it whether this is how it is in real life or not, but what shaped my decision-making was he was this big, powerful guy to them, a real father figure. For me, it was I took care of him. Got it. And so we did have that conversation that you were asking about. He did explain to me that he was concerned about the future of Mexico. He explained that he wasn't going to be able to work in his businesses and that those businesses had to be sold at some point. My two brothers were not in those businesses. So it's like, look, go find something and do it. And, and growing up in Mexico, uh, going to college, university itself is not something that, or, you know, especially then, that is a foregone conclusion. It's not the holy grail. It's not the end all and be all. In fact, in my high school, <laughs> the joke was, well, if you want to take another four years of being a lazy, yeah. just go to college, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> 
But when you're ready to get to work, that's, pro that's to probably work. still true in the states. It just <laughs> it's just branded differently. Yeah, maybe depending, so I, depending on your major. Yeah, so I came here with that. Um, I went to work in a Mexican restaurant as a cook. My brother had invested. It was a he had about I don't know nine ten percent of it in the restaurant. I love to cook. I went in to cook in the restaurant. How does it work, or how did it work for you at the time? And maybe how that's changed over the years, like. You're in Mexico, you want to go to the U.S. I, I assume you don't just get to go. What's the process for immigration? Yeah, I mean, green cards at the time were a lot easier. To, yeah. I don't know how long it took, but it was something that we were able to get done. And I got a green card and I started working here at and, 17. And if, if you were 17 today, it would not work like that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And for most people that I interact with today and that I interacted in the kitchen at the restaurant, that was not the case. Got it. Right. They had yeah. uh, sacrificed everything, family, mm -hmm. life in many cases. And in, in that kitchen, I found what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And what was that? I wanted to have an impact in the communities that were somehow marginalized or underinvested because it was so painful to see what was going on in these communities. It didn't make sense to me that as a family in Mexico, we don't have perhaps the access or the opportunity that, that the U.S. provides or allows for if you're willing to work for it. But you have family. You have community in a way that is amazingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. Then when you sacrifice everything to come to the U.S. and you're a, a couple or maybe an in, a single parent, your kids don't speak English. You don't speak English. You don't want them to speak Spanish because they may be deported. They don't have a family or a community. So the gangs become their community. You're working two or three jobs. The kids are alone. They don't know what to do. And the Mexican mafia and the drug business at that time is saying, oh, perfect. Now you're 13, 14, 15 years old, and you make 10 times more money than your mother and father working like day and night yeah. until your brother gets killed or your sister gets killed. And the families are helpless to what to do. In the late 80s, that was the reality of almost everyone I had as a, as a colleague in the kitchen hmm. and their stories. Uh, and when I went to their South LA, Huntington Park, East LA, apartments or whatever community meeting I ended up going to or church group that I visited. Those were the stories of every day. So you're in this kitchen, you have this moment or this, you, you discover what you want to do with your life. How did that translate into getting, approaching it from, these are my words, but a real estate perspective. Like how did, how did this desire to help underserved communities get to a point where you said, Oh, I think I can do that through real estate. Yeah. So at that time, I met who eventually would became my wife. Her father was owned a few properties in all over Southern California, mm -hmm. and they were there was a property management business, and he had small buildings here and there. And when I would visit those neighborhoods with Juan, my my father in law at the time. They were about half of them were in those neighborhoods. And I would understand them to be 
why are they in this condition? Why are we not, you know, why are you not investing or, or why is there? And, and he is an immigrant from Argentina. He had the same issues, which is, look, there's no credit. There's no access. I'm scraping by. He came here with nothing to become very successful. I've got what I've got and I'm just making it as best as I can. So I started digging deep into why those communities had a different reality than others by going to church meetings. And then I sat at city council in Huntington Park. as a, I was about 19 years old, I think. And I'm the only person in the council chambers. And there are, it's, I had understood approximately at that time that about 70% of the population was Latino. There were five elderly white council members there. And I was the only person and the meeting was gonna get started and they're looking at me and they're like, can we help you? And I'm like, well, it's in a public meeting. I'm just sitting yeah. there. Well, do you need anything? No, I'm just here to listen. Okay, and the city attorney's like, we should get started with the meeting. Yeah. And eventually they went through the whole business and they decided everything for the community. And of course, no one was there. And, and everything in the streets felt like a powder keg. There was violence. There was tension. Oh, tremendous. The Latino gangs, the black gangs, the community, the, the, the stress of these neighborhoods. And then Rodney King happened in 1992. Yeah. And one of the buildings of my girlfriend's father burns to the ground. 69th and Western. So I go down there to see what's going on. And I realized 20, 30 buildings within a few blocks are burnt to the ground. And looking at it and seeing what was going on on the streets, because it was chaos. Yeah. I said, no, this is, this is what I got to do with my life. And I knew nothing about anything. <laughs> But I knew that there was massive opportunity and that no one was doing anything about it. At the time, there was a, a woman, uh, Gloria Molina, who was a very young Latino uh, leader activist who was running for city council just a few years before that first district. She won as the first Latina woman in city council history. And I had volunteered for her campaign. And she really inspired me to say, well, if you want to see something change, you have to do it. It's not going to happen on its own. And that's what pushed me over the edge. And, and so I went to the county of L.A. I said, hey, this is burnt down. I've done research here. There's not a single facility for this community of any kind. There's no health. There's no school. There's no nothing. And after about a year or so, I got a grant from L.A. County to build a health start building, whopping 4,000 square foot <laughs> masonry building. I called my brother-in-law. We weren't married at the time, but it was my, my, I guess he was in Boston University. And I said, Leandro, LA is burning down. Man. And I don't think you're studying very much over there. You know, I was, my culture was like, you're just goofing off. Yeah. It's time to get to work. Why don't you come back and let's start something together that changes things. And he came back 
And that we started, we worked there for a while. He ended up going, doing other things until 1999 when he joined me. But that's how we got started. Very cool. I want to take a moment to kind of dive into, so why you would go to a city council meeting. What, what is it? I don't want to lead you here. Is it, you were just super curious? Yeah. Super curious. I went to church group. Enthusiastic that you actually had an opportunity to be involved in the government and maybe in Mexico, that was less of a, of a thing. I was too young. I don't know. In Mexico, certainly the way we think about institutions in Mexico is they're all corrupt. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just like whatever you do, it's nothing's going to change. <laughs> at least that's how I grew up. That's why that's what I was getting at. Because, again, I didn't want to I, I you know, Mexico better than I ever could. But that was, you know, that's somewhat the impression for for a while there, I think. Yeah. But um, and maybe that's changed recently. But I was thinking, oh, maybe you being in a, in in the states for the first time you're like no i can actually make a difference yeah so what i had heard because of my father-in-law's buildings was that he had to go pull a permit for this or a permit for that or had to get some right of use over here over there and every time that had to go they had to go to city hall and so i went to city hall to look at a permit on something they were doing tenant improvement or whatever mm-hmm. and as oh okay this is where decisions are made in democracy, in a real democracy, right? I've been obsessively curious my whole life. Reading is my passion. So I basically educated myself. Life and books have been my university. Why do you think you went and 70% of the community did not? I have my thoughts on that, but I want to hear your thoughts. Well, first of all, I had the privilege of being bilingual. Yeah. And and the other thing I realized, and I remember sharing this with Alex Padilla at the time, and uh, is, you know what, here's something that I have that is a Trojan horse. I don't look Mexican. And I'm going to use that to my advantage because there's such a perception that I'm going to show up in a donkey with a bottle or something like that with a cactus on my forehead. And that's how they're going to bucket me, right? So I would show up. English speaking, blonde, light eyed. And they might they might share things with you, disclose things with you that historically yes. maybe not. Yeah. And the, the one of the things I learned is there's a language that occurs more so then than now about quote unquote those people. And that's the kind of language that I experienced as well in those communities with those people. We kind of don't do that. And I think they felt comfortable to have that conversation with me because we were the same. If I heard you correctly, taking another step back, your decision to immigrate to the U.S., I don't want to say it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. You you had one brother here, another brother who was here a lot. Your dad was, it sounds like, very much encouraging you to do that. But if you could, from I want to see from kind of a mentality standpoint, why do you think some people in, in let's call it in a country like Mexico would choose to make that track, and then some don't? Yeah, and and, and I don't want to even just say simply put because they have no other options, and some do. But why do some people who maybe really have it tough in Mexico are like, look, I'm willing to risk everything and go to the states, and and I don't speak the language, I don't know anybody, or if I do, it's 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 it's, it's a major disruption to put it lightly. Yeah. While others may say like, yeah, you know what, maybe I should do that, but I'm just not going to. That's evolved in the last few decades, right? Yeah. I think at the time when it started and people 
the U.S. really needed, and if you look at George Friedman's recent books, needs still does immigration. Absolutely, um, people would remember that there was a lot of work in north of the Rio Grande, right? I'll call it that because it used to be Mexico, right? And so as all of that debacle went down and the borders got redrawn and everything and opportunity was there, there that history stayed within south of the border and saying, well, there's jobs there, there's opportunity there, there's affluence there. We go to work and we come back. We earn some money and we come back. We earn money and send it back. And when I came here, remesas, which is the the Western Union kind of you send money back was kind of the, the biggest income for Mexico after oil. <laughs> and that changed. Um, I think people were willing to risk everything for the opportunity because there was no confidence in the institution that Mexico was. No work. It's a very classist society, not racist, but classist. So opportunity is only there for the elite and that's the way it's going to be and you're going to be there and you're going to just stay there it's forever. more Europe, like european in that sense yeah than america absolutely yeah. and i mean and definitely because remember what what mexico was you know Spain, mostly yeah. french and spanish yeah. influence so that's what the drive was but the bracero movement that brought all of these workers here proved that you could make a lot of more money less so less time course you were working brutally and whatever and those people came back and said oh how did we buy this well my dad went there and earned this and now we have a house or we have a truck or we have something and that language stayed with the communities and so it was always that dream of i'm going to america to work and find opportunity what's changed over the years is the quality of life in the communities in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in these communities in America was coming back to Mexico and El Salvador and Guatemala as yeah, you might not want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the common thread in, in these countries is, well, if you want to go to America, you're just going to work 24 hours a day. It's going to cost you almost everything you make over there. You're going to have no family, no friends, nothing to do with your life. Sure, it's going to pay you more, but it's probably not worth it. Mm-hmm. That really did create a gap in the a massive immigration. But, but so many people stayed and had family here that at some point in 2009, more or less, birth rate was the biggest growth of the Latino population over immigration, mm-hmm. which was really an important moment for our business because it we started thinking about, we had a, the original slogan for the company was leaders in the Latino real estate industry, just basic didactic. Sometime in the mid 2000s, we changed it to real estate is our first language. Because we realized that we had to do business more and more in English in Latino communities. Because they were speaking more English. Because they were speaking more English. But that also created an incredible void in the family. Whereas grandmother was like, these kids, who are these yeah. kids? Like, I, I don't understand any of these <laughs> kids, right? And they were like, ah, abuela, you know? Yeah, it's probably even more so now with social media and all that. Yeah, that's a whole different topic. Not, uh, that's, a, that's a longer conversation. <laughs> that's a long conversation. All right, so so it, you're, we're coming out of Rodney King. 
there is LA and from a real estate perspective, a lot of buildings negatively impacted, burned to the ground, simply put. Yeah. You had this moment, you got your grant, called your future brother-in-law, said, let's start a company. And that company is Prime Store. Yes. Yeah. And the name is hysterical because all I knew was I didn't want to have a name that was Latino because I knew we were already going to get pigeonholed somehow. Yeah. So I was like, okay, give me this name, Taken. Give me that name, Taken. My lawyer called me and says, look, you're about to sign a document where I will not allow you to do so without the name, <laughs> a registered entity. And I was like, well, call it Prime Store. But take the E out at the end because I'm from Mexico. I don't know how to spell. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how the name came about. That's how the name came about. And it meaning prime stores, prime locations. Yeah. But the joke always is it's without the E at the end, right? And yeah. I'm like, yeah, the last E. Right? The last one. And that's that's kind of how it just stuck. And today that's just the it is it is the joke at the office as well. That's it's, good. I never knew that. So so Talk to me about those those first couple of years building a business. Like I, I want to hear the story about the business itself and what it focused on, and maybe some major milestones. But I want to start actually with what your life looked like at the time. Mm. Like your again day to day, your the the, the, the grind, right? But, yeah. But what, what what were your days like? You know, I I grew up doing martial arts, so my whole life was my dad's original message to me was, "You're the youngest of three boys." You got to learn how to take care of yourself. Yeah. My brothers were always good to me, but Mexico City was tough. So I had that in my life for almost all my life. And so I had that discipline to do that irrespective of whatever was in my life. Early, early in the morning, go train, do that. Then I would actually be at the restaurant and doing real estate. I would say 20 hours a day was a normal day. It was great. The energy was incredible. I was full steam ahead. I felt like I had found a balance, of course, working exhaustively. I was going to say, don't confuse that with work-life balance, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is, by the way. You know, that's something <laughs> <I> get... <laughs> we, we do. We, every, every episode we get here, and <laughs> as you know, that we hire a lot of young men and women uh, into the industry. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's an, overblown stereotype they're not being indoctrinated at colleges but like they, they definitely have this concept that i respectfully would probably suggest you and i didn't it's like work-life balance as yeah. if it's uh i don't want to say entitlement but it's something that they, they really hope to achieve in their 20s and <laughs> we have to kind of educate that out every no but everyone we we i've sat down with and and obviously they're high achievers and i say hey, talk to me about your uh, work-life balance. talk to me about what was it like and they're just like work-life balance just worked all the time and so <laughs> If I heard you correctly, you were sleeping four hours a day. Yeah. God bless, man. Yeah, I mean, the restaurant business, think about, again, pre-internet, pre-anything. You had to put orders on the telephone <clears throat> around two in the morning, call them in to a recording machine twice because you want to make sure they don't mess something up. After you clean the kitchen, get everything ready, lock up, right? That's it. You're getting home at three-ish. And then you were waking up early to train. To train. And then shower and get to work, the restaurant and the real estate office, you know. And at some point that became unmanageable, thank God, because the real estate started making sense and taking off. But I will say something about life-work balance because 
maybe the way it's framed is, is incorrect, right? Balance to me is an internal thing, not an external thing. You know, you can see and be confused maybe today with social media that people post their best picture of the decade yeah. and that's their life. Filtered multiple yeah, times. Yeah, exactly. Posed multiple times. <laughs> Posted and yeah. who knows what else. But life work balance is something that you find within yourself as you love what you do. It's rewarding in everything that it encompasses. What what fills you up inside, what makes provide for your family. Yeah, provide you provides for your satisfaction. That's the balance that I find I search for every day and I try to find that balance. Not in, oh, today I'm doing this and tomorrow I'm doing that. You know, it's that's where I I've found balance. And I, I would say I've had it in my life that way on and off most of the time. Mm -hmm. There's obviously been, you know, Appearance, ups and downs yeah. for sure. But so my days were like that. It was pretty intense. Everything was manual at the time. So I would drive, take all my notes, go to the planning counter, the building safety department, fill out applications 52 times because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. They were wrong. Um, inspections, permits, entitlements, everything. I did everything myself. Rent collections, bank reconciliations, whatever it took. Take bank uh, checks to the bank, walk in, right? So we, I did everything. Write letters, learn how to write letters. I, went, I never went to college, so I was like, okay, I read a book about how you write a letter and how do you format it correctly. Figure it, figured it out. Yeah, figure it out. And and what 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 did the real estate projects look like at the time when you were getting going? Yeah, so <clears throat> we thought, oh great, this is a development business. It's great. We built the four thousand square foot mainstream building in South LA, and then psh, nothing. <laughs> right. So yeah. it was, oh okay, that was a fluke. It felt amazing, but I can't repeat it because there's no money, there's no lenders, there's no tenants, nothing. So we basically started uh, buying tiny little buildings, brick buildings. At a time when you had to do reinforcement. Like storefront? Yeah, storefront, 4,000, 5,000 square feet. Are we talking South LA, Hollywood? Where are we? So mostly South LA, Koreatown, and yeah. East LA. Yeah, and a lot of the brickers, they were underparked, right? Zero parking. Zero parking. Yeah. yeah. And no storefronts, they've been broken. No storefronts or, or very, very small frontage deep. Yes. Which for retail is a challenge. Exactly. Exactly. But our goal at the time was, hey, if I can change the windows and I can paint the building, I'm the best damn thing in the neighborhood. And I'm going to rent it only to the local businesses. That was the business plan, right? I'm going to give opportunity to the shoe repair guy, the flower lady, mm -hmm. right? Of course, that had a very limited potential because they were small deals and there was no credit to your earlier point. So no bank would give you any money. Yeah. The only way we got a bank, and it was an Asian bank. I, I want to say it was either Hanmi or California Center Bank, or one of those. East West, that, maybe. Yeah. One of the early ones that said, what I, what I did is I went down to the garment district at the time and followed the money. Right. All the customers for these jobbers or Latinos buying cash. And the tenant who was Korean would take the cash over to the bank and deposit it. So I went to that bank and I said, you see where all the cash is coming from? That's my tenant. That's my customer. And so well, we understand your customer. So 
50% loan to value. And we scrambled between friends and family, anyone we yeah. could know, put money together yeah. and bought a whopping hundred and eighty dollars or $200,000 building. And that's, that's how we got started. And just over time, you graduated in asset classes. Yeah. So what happened was... Or asset size. Excuse yeah. Me. It was both. I, I started doing community meetings and trying to understand what the community wanted. And the first thing that came out of that was two things. We want what every other neighborhood has. And we want to have jobs. There's a, there's a misunderstood fact that people think, oh, because of the internet, these communities now are aware of what they don't have. But that was never the truth. Because the nanny and the gardener and the valet parking guy was always there and always aware of what they did. Yeah, have, they knew. Right? And so they always wanted that. And then jobs in their own community, which were basically non-existent. So there's no public transportation. There's no car. There's no access. You got to go somewhere to work. And it's far. And that's what changed it for us. So we said, okay, you want what everybody else wants. That means what? And it, they started giving us names of businesses and mm. tenants and stuff. And I said, okay, great. I'm just going to go do it. Yeah. <laughs> Negative. You know, it's like, not that no, easy. we're not interested in those communities. There's no parking. There's no access. There's no income. And another one we got all the time was, well, they're just going to take the money back to their country and there's no customer loyalty there. So why would we do that? Hmm. So that was about 10 years of rejection so we kept doing these small little deals and financing this small little thing small little deal there until we basically turned the corner and we were able to land our first credit tenant subway sandwiches let's go it's fantastic <laughs> we won the lottery with that and then it went into like a burger king and whatever and that's when i understood that i had to learn the financial markets language on my own as well from the financial markets themselves and 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 really package my deals to say okay what is it that you're rejecting from me i had figured out what the tenants wanted but not what the lenders wanted and eventually you did we did yeah 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 i i reached out to a couple of guys that had started their company buchanan street Partners. sure yeah bob and tim and jim i said i've got three great deals i'm gonna leave a ton of money on the table they're already done I've got the tenant, I need the money, but really what I want to do is I want to learn everything that you want to know. And I want to read the contracts, the documents inside out so that I can learn what it is that you look for. And we did, we left a ton of money on the table. Everybody made a good return and we learned a lot. You talked about a big win getting Subway. What were some of the other big wins around that time? Yeah, I mean, we did Burger King. We did all of these tiny little tenants. You know, it was just one at, uh, at the time, Hollywood Video and Radio Shack. And anything we could get, yeah. it was about that. But one of the things that really became difficult for us is we said, well, we were naive. And obviously, I, I, I understood leases quite well. But I added a clause in the leases that said the tenant commits to hiring all its staff locally. Red line, take that out. There's no way we're going to do that. You're crazy. You don't tell us how to run our business. Well, actually, don't you hire locally? Yeah, but 
you know, if we do, that's our choice. You don't tell us. That became a big bone of contention between what I felt was my calling and why I got in this business to begin with and what the market was telling me. And so we forced, I said, if you don't sign that, we're not doing the deal. And slowly, 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 that became the norm. And that is a still to this day in one of leases. our biggest in our leases. Yeah, Interesting. local hiring is required. We help them tremendously. How do you, how do you define? Is like within five miles, or how do you define local? So now we do it in in rings. The first local hire is truly local, 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 like census tract block, and we define that very carefully. But we're there two, three years ahead of time, sourcing, talking to community about where it is that they were. They're going to be finding opportunities. So prepare yourself for the job. Take some courses, reach out, you know. Then we expand it to one mile, two miles, three miles. Ultimately, the city, whatever city it is, LA or Southgate mm-hmm. or Bell Gardens, or that's the outside ring, if we can help it. Generally speaking, that's what we do. So it's the mid 90s? That yeah. is the mid 90s, exactly. Mid 90s. Yeah. You're mid to late. You're hours. working twenty hours. A, 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 you're you're awake twenty hours a day. You you know you obviously training, but yep. then some of it in the kitchen. But then real estate takes a bigger and bigger role. I'm assuming at some point you you had to exit out on the restaurant cycle. Yeah, actually the ninety two. Ninety two. When I got into that, I stopped working in the restaurant business. So you're 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 pouring blood, sweat, and tears into the the real estate company prime store it's growing you're you're getting creating momentum but again you are sacrificing a lot you're 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 pouring a lot of energy into it at the same time if i'm not mistaken personal life married kids mm-hmm. yes two kids my daughter was born in 97 my son in 99 how did how did you balance your professional commitments with your personal commitments you know, interesting. When I grew up in Mexico, if I had any activity or not, my parents had no clue. Yeah. Did you culturally it was different or was that unique to your family? No, no, that was culturally. It yeah. was like you do what you do and you I come home, you're like, hey mom, I hit a home run. Yeah, that, that's that's a nice sweet. I didn't even know you played baseball, right? <laughs> <laughs> you just or like, why is the kid missing an arm? You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's how it went. But here the culture was such a an, a, an amazing opportunity to really be engaged in your kids' lives. And I connected deeply with that. So I kept my 20-hour days. You know, I would either, you know, drive the kids to school every day. I would take them. I would then go to the office. I would not be home when they got home. But when I got back, I would help them with homework or whatever. My daughter got into horseback riding and jumping. And I grew up riding, so I would take her. And my son was a soccer and a gymnast. And I was there at everything. And when they went to sleep, I went back to work. Hmm. Now, uh, when you went back to back to work back then, was it at home or did you have to go back to the office? Because it was generally at home. I was going to say it, technology was just coming in to where. Yeah. Well, and I'm terrible at, at it. So, but at the time, literally, it's one of the memories that I have is me carrying file boxes I was say, uh, with literally 200 checks with all the paperwork, with all the files, plans. Paperwork you know, stacks of documents to read and redline until the wee hours in the morning. Wow. 
It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, it's super rewarding, exhausting and rewarding, which I think is about the best thing you can get. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts. I, people sometimes ask like, man, how do you, or in this case, I'd ask you, how do you grind so hard? I, I, I always say like, well, a lot of it's conditioning. Mm-hmm. You know, I say, if you asked me to run a marathon today, I'd struggle. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I'd, I'd be like, you know, how do you do that? But if, if I went out and ran a mile today and then the next day ran a little more and a little more and yeah. over the course of a couple of years, slowly trained to run a marathon, I'd, I'd like to think I could do that. Yeah. And so, you know, I, sometimes I, I don't want to say I push back, but I say I, a lot of it's conditioning. It is. It it's seems mindset like, too, right? Well, yeah, mindset. I was going to say from a conditioning standpoint, you've been conditioning since, you know, you're young with the discipline of martial arts and then coming to the States and working those long hours. But it's mindset. It has to be, it has to be something that you desperately want. You know, you almost, yeah. almost to a point you need where, because if you're working that hard or you're pouring that much in or working those long hours and you don't really know your why, um, it's not going to last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a huge topic, you know, know your why, as I mentioned, I'm a fanatic reader. So I read every day, practically everything from business books to biographies to novels, constantly switching it around and finding new topics. And I think that in my life, I'm comfortable with the fact that the purpose of life is to give love and to live. There's nothing more to it when you really, really wire it down to what it is. That is my purpose. And so if I can have the energy, the stamina and the health, because I live with my dad, what happens when you don't have it? That's mm-hmm. that sits over my head every single morning. If I'm ever tired, jet lag, whatever it is, and I know I got to get to the gym in the morning, I'm like, oh, you better get your ass out of the bed here because you can, because you should, because you have that ability mm. that you may not have tomorrow. In addition, we're talking about why, in addition to serving the communities that historically had been underserved or not served at all, that was a big why, if I heard you correctly earlier. What was what were some others? You know, I think the community has given me more than I have given it, right? And that is something I discovered probably in the early 2000s when I realized what is so rewarding about all this? You know, um, how do I define success? And for me, the definition of success is the ability to make your community and your world better while making yourself better at the same time and not at the cost or the expense of either. So like aligned interests. Aligned interests. Um, you know, there's a, a very famous Mexican president that said that, uh, Respect for the rights of other is peace, right? That's a translation from what it says. And I think that I try to live with that every day, that everybody's got the right to an opportunity, not anything after that, but an opportunity being created. And that that's what gave me my why. That's what gave me my purpose. But when you really distill it down, it's to give love and to be present. I, I zeroed that down to the why of everything. You, you had touched on earlier at the very beginning, you were talking about a trip you took to Papua New Guinea with your brothers, 2009. We don't need to spend too much time, but you were in real estate 
during the GFC, during the group financial crisis. How was that as the CEO of Prime Store? Did it create tremendous challenge or, or given the communities you were investing in, you might have been a little more insulated at than the traditional real estate operator? Yeah, we went on that trip. My father died that year. And so my brothers and I said, if we're ever going to do it, let's do it now. Let's do it in his honor. Let's kind of take this moment. He was always big on finding a sense of purpose and being present in life and explorer. He was an adventurer always. He instilled that in us. And the global financial crisis came in. And I was already used to previous recessions where, and this is why I had chosen to raise a fund, because what happens is the, the crisis dictates mainstream financial markets in a way where capital, quote unquote, flight to quality is another expression that is used. Yes, I've heard it. <laughs> While we have 30 years of growth in our communities, we have 30, 40 years of the imbalance of supply and demand still. But the capital markets leave us at the perfect time when they should be doubling down, when prices come down, when the government puts more support for infrastructure, when there's going to be better pricing in the construction side of things, exactly when you can get your best returns and your best market opportunities, that's when capital says, well, we're going to flight to quality. And that's why our model has always grown slower than others. It's because the capital markets is our biggest obstacle. Today, tenants are not our obstacle. The sales are off the charts. Occupancy, we're at 98% today and growing, but it is the capital market. So 2009 was challenging as every other recession had yeah. been challenging for me. It was just a Tuesday basically. And, 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 and I dealt with it that way. In fact, we built one of our biggest projects, Asalia in Southgate mm -hmm. in 2009, 2010, when I was going out to raise capital to build a retail center and that I remember banks saying, excuse me, it's a, pr it's a prank call. Yeah, yeah, it's a prank call. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And tenants were like, sure. Yeah, we'll sign the lease. Yeah, no yeah. problem. It's like, it's never going to happen. No. Right. And that, that center is off the chart successful. So it was a challenging time, but it is actually as challenging as now, you know, we're going yeah. into this economic cycle and whatever, to me, it feels just exactly like whatever I experienced before. I was going to ask, what are you, what are you seeing today? Where, what are you, what are the challenges facing you? But also what, what do you see is happening? And, and then how do we kind of, how do we get out of this thing? Well, I would say that <clears throat> today there is a unique correlation that we probably never have had before which is the velocity of technology, the ability to communicate, disseminate information in 30 seconds where decisions are made impulsively in an economic cycle that is going to try to rectify probably five, 10 years of low interest rates too long, free money too long. Yeah. I think that's what's creating that total like stagnant, like nobody's doing Yeah, I anything. call it a malaise. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's right, right? I mean, you, you develop the limp and now you just don't know how to walk without a cane. Yeah. But you actually could. And so you got to un unlearn that behavior. But that's on the on the back of a generation that doesn't understand that when you achieve something on a video game, on a screen, you didn't achieve anything. Nothing. 
And so, but but in their almost in their DNA, they're they getting feel a, they're getting like a dopamine they did, hit, right? Yeah. And so it's always someone else's problem. Oh, the government is a nightmare. I hate the government. Oh, the government's useless. Oh, this it's always someone else's problem. Or like victim mentality. Yeah, completely. As opposed to I am the agent of change. I need to be involved. I need to be. I have agency over my life. Exactly. And more. I have agency over my choices, which could impact community, et cetera. So I do think that we're in a protracted, low return, low volume, higher interest rates. I mean, interest rates are probably where they should be. Yeah. Right. At the company, by the way, we've always underwritten development deals at a 7% cost of capital on, on debt side. Hmm. If we were able to borrow at two, great. If we were borrowing at six, it's fine. But seven has been our constant. So I think it's going to be a, a, a long, painful, not deep, but long pause. Yeah, the malaise. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's exactly. the best way. Yeah, we're seeing on the, you know, just on the transaction side, just cost of capital has gone up so much. The buyers just, I'm not here to defend them, but it, they can't underwrite to what they were previously. And then sellers, price motivated sellers are out right away. And then the yeah. other side, it takes a long time to come to reality that an asset, regardless of what the asset in this case, real estate is worth less than it was a year ago, two years ago. Well, true. And also there was a little bit more discipline coming out of the GFC, right? So the people have more cash, the loan to value is probably reasonable. Yeah. So you say, well, if I'm gonna take it in the short selling, I'm just going to pay down my loan if I can. I'm going to take less cash flow if I'm able to, but I'm not going to. Yeah, and discount. and what we're seeing is on the operating fundamentals outside of office. Office, I think, has some yeah. material problems. Yeah, and uh, some multifamily in certain markets, but retail, industrial. I mean, rents have gone up. Yeah, sales have gone up. Vacancies are down. So then they're like, "Where's the distress? Why would I sell?" Yeah, so exactly. That's exactly. a challenge from uh, real estate that that we're seeing. From a transaction side. From a transaction side. Yeah. From a transaction sure. side. And, and the transactions are often function capital, whether it's asset level debt or cost of equity. Yeah. You know, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, and that's, as, as you know, I'm partners with Federal Realty yeah. and being in the investment committee there. I mean, that's advantage of, a, of being a superly highly respected public company Cheaper and raising capital, capital quickly and inexpensive. Well, especially with a salesman like Don Wood. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, doesn't get better than no, Don. No, he's the best. He's he the really best. is. How would you describe kind of a, a general question, but a very important one. How would you describe your mentality and your approach to, you know, your profession, but really life in general? You know, I would say relentless curiosity. You know, I, I, I'm always, always curious to learn more, but at the same time, relentless about what it's going to take to get something done. So I am very, very focused on if it, if it isn't done today, but it makes sense, there's got to be a way to do it. We're going to explore and educate ourselves to understand the works of something. So it's, it's a commitment to be humble and and learn every day, but don't give up. I was going to say you said knowledge and, and really learning. Yeah. And a, a lot of um, searching out more knowledge or searching out learning is having the humility 
that, Hey, I don't know everything or I don't know a lot of things. Yeah. And I think I've heard you say with, with humility comes learning or something, something yeah. like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I used to get a lot of questions about, oh, well, you know, what's the secret sauce of Prime Store? I, I think that I have to be Mexican or I have to speak Spanish in order to do that. I said, you know, the secret sauce of Prime Store is humility. It's the, the self-awareness that we can always be better. Somebody else has a different perspective. It could be the right one for us. We should be always open and learning. And, and I think that's, I never learned anything really worth learning through success. Failure. I start believing Mistakes. my own bullshit yeah. and I'm like, oh yeah, no, no. When things go wrong, when I'm like, oh God, what a moron, or, or I should have seen that coming. It's like, okay, I'm not going to forget that. Right. But the feeling's visceral enough to where you're like, I don't want to feel this way again. Yeah, exactly. And so, or, uh, or hurt others that are dependent yeah, sure. on me. Right. Sure. So mistakes that I've made in my life that have hurt others is the most painful. Right. So you don't ever want to go there. And, and so what from a mindset you, we had touched on earlier, the generation of, you know, achieving things on a screen. But what have you seen with this new generation of young professionals and, and perhaps strengths and weaknesses? And what advice would you have looking back on your experiences in your career that you would give to someone either getting into a business or perhaps they're in a business or in, a, in, a, in, a, in an industry and they're just thinking about taking that leap, taking that chance, starting the business, going for the promotion, something. Yeah. Um, a couple of questions there, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I do see a big disconnect in work ethic and the, the, I mean, it's called real estate for a reason, right? This That's one of the true. things I love about yeah, real estate. It's a real it's tangible. It is tangible. And so, We've seen a lot of mistakes made by interns or young hires where they, they go at the technology to find the answer to something or do the research or whatever, and they literally miss the forest for the tree, right? Yeah. It's literally that shocking. So that I think would be one of my biggest things to say is, look, it's if you want to be in real estate, look at the first word and realize that no matter what happens on a screen, no matter what happens in your mind, whatever you feel your accomplishments are in the digital world, they're not real. And you got to get your shoe leather worn out. You got to get out there. You got to go table. to the property. Got to go to the property. Got to go to the tenants. Got to ask the questions. It's a human interaction business. And I don't see a lot of understanding of that. It's not so much that I would say, oh, they're lazy because that's not the case. There's a confusion that technology has been developed over the, you know, since the industrial revolution to make our lives easier, not to make us lazier, yeah. but to make us more efficient. Efficient. Right. And today that's been lost, right? It's uh, people, you see people texting, people that are three desks away and, and answering texts or emails in 30 seconds with no thought to them, right? So there's that confusion about what the mind, the effort and the heart is the biggest thing you bring to anything you do not your skill set is how quickly you can type something that is just nonsensical yeah right? how much thought did you actually put into yeah that? yeah just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something yeah because i mean i have an issue with art the, the, the term artificial intelligence i think it's artificial maybe knowledge because at the end of the day it's pulling together everything that we already have put in somewhere. I, I agree. Yeah. Right? 
So yeah, I it's think not that's creating something new. It's correct. just taking what we've created and, and very efficiently aggregating it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a great tool. It's awesome. As long as you're using your brain for it's efficiently efficiency. What, how, how did you define success? Perhaps earlier in your career now and, and, and really how has your definition of success changed over the years? It's a great question. Because there's, there's financial success with fulfillment, satisfaction. So yeah. whatever it means to you. It changed a lot. And I've made many mistakes in my life where being caught up in this crazy pace of life, I didn't have the self-awareness con constantly in my life to be able to define success in what I wanted in life. And to me, that success was am I always checking the box that we're improving community and the definition of community is my family, my chosen family and the community that I have an impact. And if I can check those constantly every day, that's my definition of success. Not one over the other, but all of them all the time. That's and, and that was always what I was hoping but there were many times in that rat race where I would lose sight of one or the other. True. Um, Saturdays and Sundays and community meetings or protests or activist activities where I wasn't with the family. Hmm. Or the other way around when I was like, oh, this is, you know, we had a great success. We're going to take a trip with the family. And what about the community, right? Working too late, sometimes too long, too many trips. So it, it, it also, there's no substitute for experience and the working smart over working hard is something that you really, I personally did not understand or know how until probably the last 10 years or so where I was like, okay, I understand now the, the efficiency of my time, the efficiency of what I dedicate to. And I have an unbelievable team at Prime Store. So one of the things that built Prime Store is hiring from the community, retaining long-term from the community, and they are so much better than me at, at their individual positions, all of them, that it makes the company you know, that much smarter, that much more efficient today than it ever was. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> what, what advice would you have for listeners either personally or professionally to, to achieve the things they want in life? You know, I would say always stay curious, right? Read, put the work in. Don't, don't think that something that is not done or doable is that way because of some external force. It is up to you. It is up to your volition and your strength and your dedication to your work that something will come to be. But doing that with humility while you're doing it, I think is, is the path in, in whatever career or personal choices you make. I think those are the two things that I have uh, resorted to consistently in my life that have worked um, for me and for the people that I've seen succeed. And it could be a book because you, you've mentioned reading multiple times, but is there a, a resource that you'd recommend? You know, for me, it's been um, really a life of on my own, 
finding tools because I haven't found other than at a, once I already had a certain level of success and I was able to create a forum within YPO mm-hmm. that was yeah. truly my life's board of directors, so to speak. That was probably the one of the greatest resources I've ever had in my life. But I think that when you're creating a new market and when you're trying to do something that perhaps isn't standardized or doesn't exist, you're going to have to use your own volition and your own self-confidence and dedication to, to find a path forward. And history can always remind us of you're not really inventing anything new. You're just adapting it or twisting it to what is now applicable. I, I'm I'm very big reader on uh, Marcus Aurelius and and big big believer in the Stoicism, so I find a lot of resources there. While at the same time, in in literally the opposite, the very famous the, they call them the poets of the 98s, 1898 in Spain, they almost had the opposite kind of mentality and and brought that sort of passion and, and after coming out of the the, the spanish-american war and that what everything was going on in spain that helped me as resources to me that mm-hmm. contrasting reading contrasting things and living and really looking at the opposites of things helped me helped me a lot in my career to to define where i found my my ground i mean we we talked we talked on the current market today and just the It'll take some time and it's not, you know, it may not be super deep, but it'll, it'll, it'll be a while, but not so much from a real estate perspective, from, but from an Arturo perspective, like what does the future look like for you? Well, we were lucky enough to have our first closing on our fund. Calsters is our big first anchor and some other European investors, LGT and others. I, I am building the next generation of the company now full time. I would say I'm dedicating most of my time to that. And to the fund, to building a fund business. When you say next generation, you mean uh, future talent or? Future talent. And the idea behind Prime Store is to turn it into an employee owned company. Hmm. And so we, to me, because the majority of the team, if not all of it, comes from the communities that we've served. And many of them have been with us for 20 plus years. We want them to be the owners of that, create true wealth in the community and in their families. But to own a business, to run a business, is completely different than anything they've oh, ever yeah. done. I know it. And so we're sitting together the last few years, and I've got several years ahead of me, of the training, of decision-making, of how do you have a democracy. At the same time, you have to have decision-making. decision-maker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm super excited about that transition, about that education, about that give-take. And also in establishing a fund business that uh, can build on itself so that the company now has the financial wherewithal. We already have asset management, property management, leasing, acquisition, development, entitlement, all in-house. The only piece that I've always wanted to have is our own fund. And so we're well on our way to do that. And that's what I'm focused on. So professionally, still got some gas in the tank. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, personally. Personally, that's a good question. I think I've, <clears throat> I, I am, you know, I'm a huge skier, so I, yep. I love to ski. And I think in, in the future, 
I envision myself probably living in Europe somewhere a few years out. I love to cook, so I always joke with Alexis, you know, I'm going to open a a tacos el güero out in some <laughs> village in Italy and open whenever say, the North, hell I North, want. I was going to say Northern Italy, being close to your son. Yes. Great food, <laughs> great skiing. Yeah. There you go. And I can cook my tacos whenever I want. That's so I'm right. going to send a post that's open today for two hours. I'll come visit you. Tres tacos and a tequila. <laughs> when are you going to do this? Well, I, actually, I, got, I got to put it on the calendar. Yeah, no, actually yeah. a goal without a date is a wish, right? That's Wishes right. don't come true. I, I, I'm going to do that within the next five to 10 years. Very cool. And that's my eyes are set on that. Until then, outside of the next two months, where's the next amazing trip that you're going to tell me about? And I'm just going to be like, man, <laughs> I'm doing this all wrong. No, no, no. I don't think you're doing it all wrong at all. Well, you do, you've told me about, you were talking about Morocco. We were talking about, I think during COVID, you escaped to Bali for a while. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, I, actually, when I went to Raja Ampat also, I wanted to go diving when there was not another human being in the ocean. And Alexis and I got in a Singapore Airlines flight as the only two passengers flying to Singapore. <laughs> and then we dove for about seven, eight days with not a single human being. That's it felt I mean. like a deserted planet. And you never just have that moment where you look over your shoulder and wonder if there's gonna be a big shark there. Oh, there's always a big shark there. And <laughs> I mean, we love to die with sharks. Alexis actually chases sharks, She's but, crazy. but we love diving. And, and there's more sharks in our business than in the ocean. That's a, that's a great line. <laughs> Zach, we're going to have to put that out there. That That's the hook for the episode. There's more sharks in our business than the ocean. But Arturo, it's great to see you. I'm definitely going to hang with you on one of these trips one day, but I can't thank I'm you enough to spend that time. This was great. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank, thank you so, so much. much. Yeah, great thank to you. see you. Thanks for the success. Congrats. You too.